I'm going to ask you to turn in God's Word. We're in the book of Habakkuk this evening. If you'll turn to the, that little prophecy, we're in chapter 3. The prophecy of Habakkuk tonight, chapter number 3. That's page 1163 in my Bible, if that'll help you any. Could go to Matthew, turn left, and go, what, five books, and you'll be there. Habakkuk, chapter 3. And then I want to ask you to turn to one verse. We're reading one here. There's a verse in Isaiah tonight, Isaiah number 57. I want to read a verse there. And then we're going tonight to 2 Chronicles chapter number 20. I'd like to read these two verses on our way to the text scripture. Habakkuk number 3, Isaiah number 57, and then 2 Chronicles, if you'd like to turn there. We'll be in chapter 20 there in a moment. I asked folks to turn to three places the other evening in a service like I have this evening. And uh, there's a preacher school connected to that church and, and the preacher boys, they refer to them. They're usually around the front here, scores of those students. And I asked them to turn to, I think, maybe four places that night. And one of them said to his buddy there in front, he said, surely Brother Hurt will find a sermon in one of those places. <laughs> So, I trust I shall tonight. I said to a preacher today, we was talking about some different preachers, and Dr. Tom Malone, a senior, his name came up, and I don't hear him as often as I used to hear him preach back when I was a pastor in Indianapolis area. I got to hear Dr. Malone sometime preached in conferences on up in his area. And uh, Dr. Malone is a rather, I guess I could say, a unique type of preacher. Uh, the way he approaches the scripture, and uh, I've never heard him preach without God saying something to my heart through him. But he's, oftentimes he'll read a, a lengthy passage, a long passage, and then just take a little expression out of the passage and sometimes just a word and connect it with other words. And someone asked him, said, Dr. Malone, why do you read so much scripture and then just take a little portion of it? And then his unique way of expressing himself, Dr. Malone said sometimes, when I'm reading all of that scripture, I'm looking for a sermon. And he said, other times I'm trying to get courage enough up to preach the one I got. <laughs> so tonight we have these different passages before us. Last evening we was mind reminded that God wants to do something for us. And also that he's able to do it. He's inclined to help us. He wants to do that. And then that text basically <clears throat> said to our hearts last evening, God said, I'm able to do that for you. I want to just sort of, <clears throat> with that in mind, just sort of add a little tonight as the Lord helps us. Not only that He wants to do something for us in the sense of bringing us into His blessing. He's able to do it. But tonight we'd like to sort of go a little further and find out uh, how it is we get there. What's involved in having what's been prayed for already tonight, God's presence, His power, the refreshing presence of the Lord. I understand, as I said yesterday, that's what revival is. 
Revival, as someone said, is the awareness of God. When you're aware of Him, walking in His awareness, you're in revival. And the psalmist is praying, or excuse me, the prophet is praying here. In verse 2 of Habakkuk 3, he says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. God had said something. Or literally, he says to him, it's a report. And he's reminding God that he heard what God had to say. And it's brought about some apprehension. His, he said, I'm afraid. And out of that awareness, here's his prayer. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now I'm interested in that little expression there where he says, in the midst of the years, make known. What do we understand that the prophet is praying for? He just finished saying, Lord, uh, revive your work in the midst of the years. And then this expression tied to that, in the midst of the years, make known. I understand literally he's saying, make yourself known. Revival is a divine intervention. Revival is a spiritual awakening. Revival is when God shows up. And he says, in the midst of the years, I do not read in the Bible that's not there. You can check me on this. In the midst of the years, literally he's saying, make Yourself known. In Isaiah tonight, Isaiah number 57, and uh, one verse here that will add, I trust, uh, a little more insight into what we want to be talking about tonight. Look at the 15th verse. Isaiah number 57, verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabited eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Keep in mind, revival is the awareness of God. Mindful of His presence, divine awakening, spiritual intervention. And God tells us where He shows up. He says, now I inhabit, I dwell, I'm that exalted one. I dwell in the high and holy place, but notice with Him also this particular type person. God says it's that person that has that contrite that contrite and humble heart. And he says, when I'm there, I'm there for the purpose of reviving, renewing my presence, the awareness of my presence, the reality of my presence. When I'm dwelling with him, I'm bringing about what this text calls a reviving. Over in second. Chronicles chapter 20. And uh, it's a lengthy passage tonight. We're not going to uh, give time to read all of this. 
But just about the entire chapter involves, it's the context of the text. It goes all the way from verse 1 to verse number 30. And uh, it's an account where God shows up. It's an account of uh, the scripture that God gives us when he intervened on the behalf of his people. And uh, let's look at verse number 14. I want to read the first word and then drop down and just tie together the last expression in the verse. Gives the person's name, Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jeiel, son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph. But notice the first word of verse 14 says, Then came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And the Spirit of God coming on this uh, one that's mentioned here, this uh, Levite, the sons of Asaph, the Spirit of God brought about the message of God, uh, the message of deliverance for the people of God. And in Him uh, revealing the presence of God here, I want us to try tonight as the Lord helps us, I want us to try to discover what is involved. What leads up to the Spirit of God coming in the presence of the people of God in power, in blessing. I've written across the top of the page. I'm not sure when I did this. I noticed it sitting there a moment ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 11 in the New Testament tells us these things is written four times for our admonition, our instruction, our learning. God's telling us in that New Testament reference these Old Testament stories like this one here involving King Jehoshaphat tonight and the people of God. He says they, they are to instruct us. We're to learn from them. And so the Lord helping us tonight, I'd like for you to think with me about what precedes this divine intervention. Think with me for a moment. We've already mentioned that revival is that awareness of God's presence. Revival is divine intervention. Revival is spiritual awakening as the old timers were wont to call it. Revival is God coming on the scene. Revival is God making Himself known. I mentioned on yesterday morning, and uh, since this is being taped, I'll not mention the name. He's, he's contemporary. And uh, my understanding, at least, uh, he's impressed me this way. I think he's one of the greatest authorities I've ever listened to on revival. What is it? And I heard his response in a group of preachers a few years back. They said to him, Doctor, what's, just what is revival? That's his, that's his burden. Everywhere he goes, he talks about it. And his response impressed me. He said, revival is a person, place, or a community saturated with the presence of God. God just coming. God taking over. God being in control. The awareness of God. I read a statement today where a person was talking about revival. And he says the, the prelude, the preparation for revival is an awareness of God. Well, I'd agree with that. But really, the awareness of God is revival. It's not just preparation toward it. When God moves, when God comes, when God takes over, 
When God, as the prophet said, make yourself known. I was thinking about, I'm not sure just when I heard the person say this, but it's been a number of years ago, maybe 30 or even more. I heard a man of God say, when you run up on the word, as this verse starts, then he said you ought not to go any further until you ought to ask yourself the question, when? When will that take place? See, this verse says, Then came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation, revealing the power, the presence, the message of God, what God's about to do, and gave His people the confidence and the blessing. And yet, that word, of course, then presupposes something has preceded. Something has led up to it. And that's why tonight we ought to ask the question, when can you expect the Spirit of God to come in the midst of the people of God? Bring it to a personal level. When can you expect the Spirit of God to fill your life? Uh, you bring about the awareness of God and, and walked with you. And wake in the morning, the first person you're aware of is the presence of God. You're aware of Him. Open this book, and it's not just black print on white paper. This book will be alive. God will speak to your heart. When you pray, you're not praying at God somewhere. You're conscious of the fact you're speaking to God. The presence of God, the awareness of God, the reality of God. Then came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. Well, I'd like to make about three or four simple suggestions tonight. Something the Lord's brought to my attention as I've pondered this and thought about it and something that He's used to speak to my own needy heart about. Uh, Jehoshaphat, this good king of Judah, he's just been informed that these three uh, nations, as well as the odds and ends of some other neighbor nations there, they've all got together in this confederation against it. And when they told him, told him they're just out there at Engedi, it so moves him in verse 3 that say, it says, Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Keep in mind, we're asking, we're asking the question tonight, what led up to the presence of God coming, the power of God being revealed, the blessings of God on hand? And here's a man of God being aware of all of the opposition that's around him. And when you study it and read it, indeed is a large crowd of people. Three times in this scripture they're called a great multitude. And the first thing he does, he sets himself. That's interesting. There's deliberate discipline there. It's a personal commitment on his part. Or in response to him, he's setting himself to seek the Lord. The Bible says Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah, Jerusalem and the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are not thou God in heaven? And rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is... They're not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee. Now note what he's saying. He's talking to God. Talking to God out of an awareness that he knows who God is. Lord, you're on your throne. You're sovereign. 
You're ruler over all this, the kingdoms of the heathen, including these heathens right out here outside of Jerusalem. He said, none's able to withstand thee. Are not thou our God who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gavest it to the seed of Abraham, thy friend forever? They dwelt therein and built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil cometh upon us as the sword and judgment, pestilence or famine, and we stand before this house and in, and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. And now behold the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them, destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, will thou not judge them? We have no might against this great company that cometh against us, neither know we what to do. But our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Then came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. Our question is tonight, when? First of all, when this man was honest enough, humble enough, broken enough before God, unashamedly, publicly to stand. And keep in mind, he's praying this prayer. It's a public prayer. He's not in his secret prayer closet. There's people gathered around him. All of Judah. And, and it would have been obscene to, to, uh, to beheld that, that scene. It's wonderful to think about it. Here's the women. Here's the, here's the children. Here's the little ones. And they're all there. And he's talking to God. Look what he says in verse number 12. He says, Oh, our God, will thou not judge him? Notice now his confession. He says, We have no might against this great company. Neither know we what to do. In his honesty, in his humility, he has a double confession. He, he confessed, first of all, his inability. He said, Lord, we're not able. We have no might. We're not able to stand against this opposition that's right out here from us. And not only did he confess his inability, he confesses his ignorance. He said, Lord, neither know we what to do. We're asking tonight what's involved. What is it that precedes a divine awakening, a divine intervention? What principles precede this divine intervention? And the first principle was one of honesty one of humility, one of openness. He's not denying. He's not excusing. He's doing what it's difficult for us, us, us humans often to do. And that's just admit, Lord, we don't have it. Lord, we don't know what to do. And here he is, I repeat publicly, he's the king. I mean, I've often wondered what maybe his military leaders thought when they heard him publicly acknowledging and even confessing to God. We have no might. Well, if you'd read the chapter prior to this, you'll find that he has an army of 1,600,000. That's a pretty good-sized army. And yet here he is saying, and here's his army there too, and he's saying to God, Lord, we, we're not able. We have no might. We can't come against this opposition that's, that's mighty, that's stronger than we. 
And so the first thing he does out of his humility, out of his honesty, out of his openness, uh, using one word tonight uh, to bring it into focus. When did this happen? Then came the Spirit of God when there was brokenness. Oh, I've never read about a revival that didn't have this quality, this ingredient. I turned a moment ago and read in that psalm that gives us the record of where King David, a man after God's own heart, where he had a spiritual renewal, where he got right with God. It's Psalm 51 and the 13th, uh, the, excuse me, the 17th verse. That's, the, that's really the key verse, the summary verse of the entire psalm. And David says this to our hearts, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. That's what Isaiah in that text we read tonight, Isaiah said that's the person God, God dwells with. It's the person that has brokenness. It's that contrite person. It's that person that has sorrow in their heart over their wrongdoing. They don't excuse it. They don't cover it. They don't alibi. They just come before God. And the idea of brokenness is openness. I mean, if there's something that's, that's breakable tonight, and I would break it before this audience, I mean, the, the primary characteristic of it, it's now open. It, it's broken. It's not concealed anymore. And David's been covering up. Oh, David had gone perhaps a year and, and excused his sin, or at least he didn't confess his sin. But now when you start reading this psalm, these first four verses, there's 11 personal pronouns in the first person. And David, he doesn't blame Bathsheba. He doesn't blame Uriah. David's not blaming his circumstances. David doesn't blame anyone. In these, in these four verses, I repeat, 11 times David says, God, it's my fault. It's my sin. I'm the one that did this, God. Now listen, we're talking about what it is that brings an awareness of God's power, God's presence, a spiritual awakening. It's when you and I are humble enough and honest enough, sincere enough, out of brokenness, out of confession, and we say, oh God, Lord, we're wrong. Lord, we're not able. God, we, we don't have the answer. As the king was saying before his people, Lord, we don't know what to do, and we're not able to do it. We can't stand, Lord. And here's David saying the things that God will not despise, and the opposite of that, God will put a premium on it. Oh, he doesn't low-rate brokenness. We may look down upon it, but I tell you, if you want God to draw nigh, if you want God to manifest Himself, if you want God to be real, oh, you will find that in the day that we get that place where there is that kind of openness and brokenness and, and, and we don't blame anyone else or anything else. We just say, Lord, it's my fault. I've sinned. Brokenness. David says, that's the person that'll do business with God. I was preaching the other evening and used this thought in a little different uh, context, but uh, someone asked me after the service, said, uh, Brother Hurt, what would you, uh, how would you illustrate the principle of spiritual brokenness? Uh, can we illustrate it today? And I said, well, I think so. We use that word today. It's not completely out of context the way we use the word broken now. For instance, I have a friend. I, I wish you could. I wish you could meet him. I tell you, he his profession intrigues me to say the least. He's a little fellow. I mean, in statue, little fellow, tough as a boot, strong as an ox. You know what he's profess? He breaks horses. He trains horses. 
And I mean the, the wild ones. They bring horses to him. Uh, they've captured them. They, uh, they've never seen a human being. And you ought to see the vehicles. They bring these wild horses in. And they bring them to this fella. And in just a few days, really, when they come back for that horse, oh, you can't believe. We're talking about tonight in song being changed, being transformed. I mean, he, they brought one. I tell you, one in, in particular I'm thinking of, oh, dangers. That horse would have killed you. And a large horse, mean, wild. And uh, he, he, few days, I'd say a few days, it was probably three weeks, they came back for that horse. And he said to the, the one that brought him, he had a little boy there, probably six, seven-year-old, he said, pitch that little boy up on his back. <laughs> Uh, he said, no, I, I better not do that. <laughs> he said, well, well, I promise you, he won't hurt him. He said to him, with a word of confidence, he's broken. And I said that some time ago, and a person didn't understand what I was talking about, a young fellow, and he said, well, Brother Hurt, what, what do you mean that horse was broken? I said, well, I meant what that fellow meant. He's broken. He said he didn't break his leg, did he? <laughs> well, I said, No. You wouldn't want a horse with a broken leg. <laughs> and I'm fishing for him, you know. He said, well, what? I don't understand. Uh, no, he didn't break his leg. He didn't break his neck. He didn't break his back. He broke his will. That horse was self-centered. That horse was self-willed. That horse was going to do his own thing. But now that trainer, in fact, he'd put shoes on that horse. That wild horse, mean, and he'd put shoes on that horse, had that horse broken, and said to the man that had brought him to him, he said, I promise you, you can trust him around your little ones. He, and this being a Bible student, he said he's meat. And that's the idea in the New Testament. It's the same idea. The word meek in the New Testament brings into focus what I'm talking about when I use the word brokenness out of the, out of the Old Testament. To be meek. Oh, you see, a meek person is not a weak person. That horse had as much power when he left there as he had when he, when he was brought there. But the difference was he, he had power under control. And a meek person is not a weak timid, backward kind of a person, a person that has meekness, as the New Testament talks about, is a person that has the Spirit of God in control of their life, and being in control of their life, part of His fruit that He places there is meekness, and that person is a person that is under control. And David's talking here about when we're brought to the place, brought to the place where self will is put down, where we don't have to have our own way, where we don't have to do our own thing. See, King David, if you'd read this entire psalm, David was asking God to renew a right spirit in him. And David was aware that there's a part of him had been wrong. And that inner part of him, David had been so self-centered, and when he got away from God and got in sin, he was doing his own thing, what he wanted to do. And now David's crying to God, renew in me a right spirit. And David's aware that that right spirit involves a broken spirit, one that's been brought to the end of, of one's own self and where that spirit has been broken and now is contrite before God. So we talk about brokenness tonight. That uh, king was saying before God, he said, Lord, I don't know what to do. Out of his honesty, out of his humility, 
He, he had honesty enough and he was humble enough to admit that even before those that was around him. Well, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. We use the word brokenness in that sense. But you know the word brokenness is used uh, even in our day in another sense and, and still it's Scripture. Uh, we talk about Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word poor there brings into focus this same idea, this same word. It's the word bankrupt. Uh, bankrupt, a person bankrupt. What we refer to them, they're broke. I mean, we've been there. We've done that. Brokenness. Uh, where we've come to the end, not only of ourselves, but in this sense, brokenness is when we've come to the end of our resources. Nothing in our hands. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those spiritually. They're bankrupt before God. They have nothing to offer God. They don't come with their self-righteousness. They don't come with their works. They just come before God and they're empty-handed. And our Lord said, that's the person that receives the blessing. And so in this sense tonight, to have God's blessing, who is it that God dwells around? Who is it the Spirit of God will come through for? It's that person that comes to the end of themselves and says, Lord, there's nothing else I have to depend on. I'm not trusting anything. There is no resources I can fall back upon. Lord, it's you and it's you only. I look to you. Brokenness. We have, as I said the other day, I mentioned it here, I think I did. Uh, the other evening, last night, perhaps, we, we, have, uh, we have seven grandchildren, two grandsons, five granddaughters, and our oldest grandson, Josh, he's, he, he'll be nine his birthday, but this goes back, oh, Josh was about four, and he was at our place. My wife helps care for the little ones, and he was at our place that day, and, and I'm back there, the, my door's open to study back there in the hall, and, and, and I hear his grandma laying the law down to him, and, and they're going over to the mall. And I hear uh, my wife, his grandma, saying, uh, Josh, we're going to the mall, but I won't tell you now before we go, I'm just going after one thing, and, and I don't have money today. I, I'm broke. And I heard that little four-year-old boy say, uh-uh, Grandma, you ain't broke. <laughs> and she said, yeah, I'm broke now. I want you to know, before we get there, I'm broke. And I heard him ask her a question. He said, is Grandpa broke too? <laughs> and... Uh, his grandma said, no, nah, I don't know. I don't think grandpa's broke. <laughs> and here's this little fellow back there in grandpa's room. And uh, he's in there and uh, buttering up to me. And he said, grandpa, did you know grandma's broke? I said, yeah, she stays broke. And she's broke grandpa too. <laughs> and <laughs> and that, that, you know, that's getting in front. He said, uh-uh, uh-uh. Grandma says, you ain't broke. <laughs> and... Uh, well, for you know it, he got a piece of money out of Grandpa, amen. <laughs> but uh, we get there, broken. Now, in that sense, that's perhaps not a blessing. Uh, but in the sense that God's Word's talking about tonight, that principle of brokenness, that principle of emptiness, that principle where we are brought to, where there is nothing that we can depend upon, nothing we can fall back upon. And Lord, as this King is praying, and it's of interest to me that he, he just comes right to the point and he says, Lord, uh, we are not able and neither know we what to do. Then came the Spirit of God 
in the presence, the congregation of the, the midst of the congregation and the presence of the people of God. When did that happen? That happened when this person was honest enough, humble enough, open enough, uh, didn't deny the, the reality that he faced. Even when he's praying, he, he says to God, as he talked about their own condition, crying out of their affliction in verse number 9. He said, Lord, you promise when that takes place, you'll hear us, you'll help us. And so here he is with honesty. Here he is with humility. Here he is with intensity. I mean, this is not a casual, uh, lay me down to sleep kind of approach to God. I've already indicated, look at verse 4 again. That's a real interesting expression when you begin to study it and think about it. Verse number 3, when he sets himself to seek the Lord. And then when you come down to verse 4, when Judah, out of all the cities of Judah, when the people of God, when they come to seek the Lord, that's interesting to say the least. Brings into focus a yearning. A yearning with all of their hearts. Uh, an intensity. James had that in mind, that same truth, when he talks about the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And so here is the people of God. They, they've come before God with honesty. They've come before God with humility. They've come before God with intensity. But then look at verse 12, that last expression. This is what I want to think about for a moment in closing tonight. Uh, if we stop there when he says, Lord, we don't know what to do. Lord, we don't have the ability. We have no might. We don't have the know-how. I mean, if he stopped there, you, you might be prone to think that, uh, you know, he's just now uh, been led to despair and just sort of given up. But that's not the picture at all. Look at the next expression. But our eyes are upon thee. See, that's bringing into focus what this man of God has led the people of God to. Oh, yes, out of their honest and humility and intensity, they admit who they are and where they are, and they're not able against this great multitude they referred to. But he said, Lord, our eyes are upon thee. Now, don't miss that. That's the key. Not only does... Uh, spiritual awakening, it's preceded by someone broken enough out of their honesty and the humility and their intensity. But there's an expectancy. Oh, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Our Lord said on occasion, and you find this principle throughout the Bible, it's according to your faith, be it unto you. And so what He's in essence is saying here, He's saying, Lord, uh, we, we're not able, we don't have the answer. We're not telling you how to do it, when to do it. We're not telling you what to do. But our eyes, we're looking unto thee. Oh, that's that, that's that expression that's used throughout the Bible when a servant would stand to the master and waiting for further instruction, waiting on their orders, depending on the master. And the very next verse says, Then, then, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. 
I got a call from a preacher. I hadn't seen him in a while, probably three or four years. And he called me and he said, Brother Hurt, God's laid you on, on our heart to maybe come for a meeting. And uh, I said, well, I'd be glad to. If we can work out a, a time that'll be suitable for both of us, it'll be an honor, be a privilege. I'll be glad to come. And, and he was telling me where he was at and I knew he was there, but I hadn't been with him since going. I'd preached for him in, a, in another pastorate. And I said, I'm hearing some good things about your, about your work there. And there was a little hesitation and his voice took on a little emotion. He said, Brother Hurt, in the very words you used, he said, God is paying us a visitation. And he said, it humbles my heart. It's amazing. And I'd heard a little bit about it. I'd preached probably all uh, oh, 50, 60 miles from there. And someone said, in this preacher's term about the place, he, he said, they've had a revival. And uh, his word was, he said, he said, God has uh, graciously, is the word he used, God has graciously paid us a visitation. And he said, uh, you can't believe, Brother Hurt, what God's doing. He said, I heard you in that Bible conference the last time you spoke on prayer. And he said, I, I feel that God wants you to come and speak to us on prayer. And, and said, if you if you'd, uh, if you'd do that, if God will permit you to preach on prayer, he said, we'd appreciate it. He said, uh, I'd like for you to come. And we looked at her schedule. And I suggested a date, and it's about a year and a half in the future. And he said, uh, is, is that the earliest you could come? And I said, well, really, uh, for any length of time, if you want three or four days of meeting, uh, yeah, that'd be the closest that we could work out a date. And he said, well, Brother Hurt, he said, uh, I kind of felt the Lord impress me that you're supposed to come a little earlier than that. <laughs> well, I said, uh, what date did the Lord give you? Amen. <laughs> You know, you got a hotline to him, and he's talking to you about my about me and about my ministry and me being there. I would listen, and you'd have to know him. And he's such a spirit-filled, tender, but yet such a uh, useful servant of God. And and he said, well, you know, he said, but uh, you know, I'll take those dates. But he said, to be honest, if you could give us one day, uh, I just sort of feel like God wants you to come preach. And and he said, look, look back over your schedule. Is there a day? I'm probably five hours from him where I live. And he said, is there a day you could come? I look back at my schedule and, and I ask him a question about how long it'd take me to get to another place from his place. And he said, you could probably get there in four hours. And I said, well, I, I'm due home. And I said, uh, I wasn't going to leave till Saturday, but I said, uh, I can work this out and I can be with you on a Friday, Saturday and Sunday morning. Uh, pastor lets me either start Sunday morning or Sunday evening there. And I said, he'll let me come in on Sunday evening if I can get there. And uh, in those through the afternoon, and he said, yeah, that uh, I'm sure you can. Well, within a month or five weeks, I guess it was, I was at his place. And I've said that to say this. I'm talking about revival. I'm talking about where God's come through. I'm talking about a divine intervention. I mean, where is a brother prayed tonight where something happens that you just know God's doing something. And uh, I got there on a Friday. He'd asked me to speak. He said, now you'll speak Friday night, you'll speak Saturday night. And then he said, I want you to speak twice on Sunday. And he said, out of those five messages I heard you preach on prayer, would you bring at least four of them to our people? And so I preached on prayers, he requested. But I, I drove up on the parking lot on Friday evening. God hears me. There was an awareness of God, on the, I mean in the parking lot. Interchanging with some of the people. You, they're just something, I mean... It's like you're just walking into a red-hot meeting where God has just come down in power. 
walked in the place. There's such an awareness of God. Oh, God just took over. Now, not because of Wilbur Hurt. I'm telling you, uh, that was there before I ever arrived. So I don't mean to call attention to uh, Wilbur Hurt tonight. I know who I am. And oh, did God meet with us. Like you wouldn't believe. I'm talking about just overwhelming sense. Doing some things and uh, Sunday morning, I spoke in the in the first hour. He had all of his adults, including the teens in the auditorium, and I spoke at the 10 a.m. and spoke at the 11 o'clock, and he, he walked me to the car, and I, I didn't leave till 12.30 or quarter one, and I quit preaching at 10 minutes till 12, and the invitation started there. Uh, we had uh, five adults got saved that, that morning. I preached on prayer. Uh, there'd been some saved the, the nights before, out of the five that got saved that morning, three of them were church members. Been church members there for quite a while. He walked me to the car. And uh, I said to him, Brother, you, you, you tell your people that uh, it's been my privilege to reap where I have not sowed, enter into others' labors where I have not labored. I'm aware that somebody has preceded this meeting with paying a price to bring God's presence. You know what he said to me? He said, Brother Hurt, we, we decided among our men that we wouldn't mention to you on our, about our Saturday night because we felt you might feel obligated. We knew you had to preach twice Sunday morning, drive all afternoon, and preach again. But he said, every Saturday night, we meet here around 10 p.m., and uh, a large group of men pray all night, every Saturday night. I said, really? He said, when daylight came this morning, there's probably 25 men here around them altars just broken, said they prayed all night. I stood there and wept as he was telling me that. I thought, oh my, the presence of God, the power of God, the sense of God's presence. And uh, here's a man of God before us tonight with his eyes in looking toward God. That expression is a sense of expectancy, a longing, a looking. Idea behind it is faith in the Old Testament. It oftentimes it's talking about even in salvation. That's the way we're saved. Just look unto me, said the Lord, and be you saved. I mean, it's that look of expectancy. It's that look of anticipation. It's that look of faith. Oh, do you believe God's able tonight? As I preached last night, do you believe God wants to tonight? Are we willing to take these steps of honesty and humility? Intensity, that is, put our heart in what we're doing and wholeheartedly set out to seek the Lord. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please Him. He that cometh to God must believe that He is and He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. I read a sermon by uh, Spurgeon, the late uh, great uh, English pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I read one today. I, I have a friend, he's a student of Spurgeon. He carries his volumes everywhere he goes. He says a Spurgeon a day will keep the devil away. Well, I don't know about that, but uh, Spurgeon especially, he speaks to my heart about this and about uh, the power of God and the blessings of God and how we get there. And I read on prayer about him and he talked about that Monday night. If you're a student of Spurgeon, you know about that Monday night prayer meeting that Mr. Spurgeon directed at that big tabernacle all those years they were there. And he said the average 1,200 people coming on Monday night. There was no, no, no sermons given, just prayer. And he said they prayed. 
I have a book like that. It's the only copy I've seen. Maybe there's others around, but it's the only copy I've seen. I ran up on it in a used bookstore, and, and uh, it's called Just a Prayer Meeting. And it's, it's his talks at those prayer meetings. He, Mr. Spurgeon says in the preface of it, he said, these were not prepared sermons. He said, I just gave a, a, a few exhortations off the top of my head. I read that. I said he had a lot on top of his head. Amen. But he said 1,200 people would come and seek God. And an American, American preacher there visited and said to him, when Spurgeon said, would you like to see the powerhouse of the tabernacle? And he said, I would. And Mr. Spurgeon had some attendants to open the doors under the platform. And he says, a hundred men pray for me. The hour I'm talking to God's people, they cry to God under there for me. Mr. Spurgeon, in another statement, when someone said, what's the, what's the secret of such a phenomenal ministry? Forty years in this place. And, and they packed it out. And then, believe it or not, one Sunday out of a month, he'd ask regulars to stay home so other people could get in there. Could you imagine that? Getting up and asking folks that stay home next Sunday so somebody could get in and get a seat? And when they asked Mr. Spurgeon, what's the secret? Oh, he didn't tell. And he was a brilliant, had a brilliant mind. And, and he was a great preacher, but... Uh, without a second's hesitation, you know what he said? He said, the secret of why God has blessed this place is that my people pray. Oh, listen. I wonder tonight. It, I've never read where there's been a divine intervention unless it was preceded by someone at least having in part these here uh, principles tonight out of an awareness of their need and bringing them to such a humble uh, commitment to God out of brokenness and out of this awareness that they can't do it and then put their heart in it as this king was doing as he was leading God's people and seeking and yearning and saying, Lord, we are, learn we are yearning for Thee and now we're looking for Thee. Our eyes are upon Thee. Our heads are bowed. Eyes are closed. Now, I've just come with a little addition to what we talked about last night. All over the room tonight, God's people's in a moment of quietness. I've been talking to my own hearts. I said to you last night as I talked about how God is urging us, encouraging us to come to Him in such a way that He could do that, only what He could do for us, how He wanted to bless us. Well, tonight... These principles precedes God coming through in revival. See, revival in a church starts really in the heart of an individual. You find the church that's got the awareness of God in a powerful way and God the Holy Spirit free to work there and doing, doing great mighty things for God's glory. You, if, you could, if you could trace the source of it, you'll find that it didn't start with an entire church. It started with individuals, somebody hungry, Somebody with a desire. Somebody saying, oh God, I want what you got for me. And when that begins to happen in the hearts of individuals, God then collectively begins to work in the midst of a people. Some of you are talking to him tonight. I'm going to join you in a moment. Maybe you want to come tonight. You're coming as your way of saying, Lord, I, I want to do business with you. I, I'm coming with a, at my point of need. And I'm going to kneel here and just talk to you. Don't miss him tonight. God's talking to some of us. God wants to come through on, on, on the behalf of some of us. And 
Give us an awareness of His presence. When we open the Bible, it'll be a book that's alive. When we're talking to Him in prayer, prayer will be meaningful and delightful to meet God in the closet of prayer when God's presence comes. That's revival. That's God just walking with us. But He won't impose on us. He won't force Himself. He, he waits for our response when He speaks. Some are coming. Others are here. Don't miss God tonight. Our Father in Jesus' name, make it easy for us to respond. And we'll bless you for it. Amen. Stand with us, please, as we stand all over the audience. We're standing together. Folks are coming. Don't miss Him tonight. I don't put pressure on people. You've noticed that when I'm preaching here. I don't believe in that. I'm not interested in just twisting someone's arm to get them to come. I want you to come because you, you're responding to something God's talking to you about all over the room. Oh, what would happen if some of us, a group of us tonight, would just say unreservedly, Lord, wholeheartedly, I'm going to give myself to you day by day, and, and I'm going to have an encounter. And I'm not talking about just saying a prayer. Listen to me carefully. You couldn't misunderstand. I'm talking about having a meeting with God. I'm not talking about some kind of emotional experience. I'm just talking about not leaving your quiet time until you've encountered Him. See, relationship means I, well, I've received Christ. When I receive Him, I have a relationship with God. Fellowship, listen, fellowship means I'm experiencing Christ. And when I've experienced Him in my spirit, I've had some fellowship today. And in His presence is fullness of joy. First John was written that our joy may be full. And John said, what I'm talking to you about, I want you to have the kind of fellowship that we know. And walking in fellowship where you experience Him day by day, it'll result in fullness of joy. That's revival. When you're meeting Him and experiencing Him, encountering Him daily. Oh, He waits for our response. While we wait, you come. God bless you. The preacher's here.